you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. Been in this passage the last few weeks. And uh, sort of been in this series on what it is to follow Jesus, right? What it means when we say we're a Christian. What does it mean? Do we really know what we, what, what's supposed to be meant by saying that you're a Christian, right? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? And, and we're, we're looking at this, and it, and it really goes back to the year we spent last year looking at biblical transformation. Because if we're going to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus, we, we really should understand that that comes out of being a disciple of Jesus. Just being with Him. In your notes there, I left the, the quote, the prayer that we looked at last week. It says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And last week, we, we looked at this, this system in place in the, in the culture and time of Jesus where rabbi had followers called Talmud. And, and the prayer was, may you as a follower of Jesus or, or follower of your rabbi follow so closely behind your rabbi, your master, your teacher, that the dust from your rabbi would cover you. And we saw very powerfully that the scriptures from Jesus about leaving everything to follow him, loving him more than any relationship on this planet, taking up your cross, a lot of that made sense because in the culture and in the geographic region where Jesus was saying those things, that was common. For somebody to go through the educational system, and what we, like we said earlier, the elite of the elite would be selected to follow rabbi, leave everything. If you were a Talmud, a follower of a rabbi, you left home. The rabbi became the ultimate authority in your life. You followed the rabbi, not just his teaching, but his whole mannerisms. You didn't just want to be a pupil. You just didn't want to take notes about what he said. You wanted to be the rabbi. Mannerisms. How he carried himself. You were with him this close. That's why that prayer was made the, the dust. May you be covered by the dust of your rabbi, right? Such a powerful illustration. And now we understand why Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Follow me. Leave everything. For us in Western, in our Western culture, I think sometimes this is where right away we understand, oh, I used to think that being a disciple of Jesus was one of the really committed ones. Because I was raised, hypothetically, I was raised in a church where to become a Christian, all you did was say a prayer. You, I, I went to church, I said a prayer, and then now they said I was a Christian. And then I thought that if, to be a disciple was to be really committed to come to Wednesday. To be a disciple was then to go to the ministry fair and serve. And so we created these sort of tiers in the Western culture of how we do Western church. And we said, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. Contextually, we saw last week, there is no distinction. Jesus called people to be his followers, his disciples. So if you're a Christian, biblically, you're a disciple. You became a disciple at the same time you were saved. Now, 
you may not have been taught that and you may have sort of been, uh, you know, misled or, or, you know, that whole, well, I'm a Christian, but no, I'm not, I'm not really committed. And the problem with that is that is created and permeated into all levels of the Western church. Where suddenly there's this, in churches, there's this, there's this group of really committed. And then there's this group of attenders. And somehow we want to justify that and excuse that and rationalize it because we're all Christians, but they're the disciples and we're just Christians. When truth be known, Jesus said, hey, come follow me. Leave everything. I, I, I need to be number one. I want you to love me more than anybody or anything. Take up your cross and follow me. That wasn't just to the core committed. That was to all of his followers. And that's challenging for us because we shared last week about the, the story of the pastor at their church who had gotten an email from somebody who said, I'm leaving the church. Right? And so the pastor looks up the phone number, calls the guy up and says, hey, this is pastor so-and-so. I understand you're leaving the church. And the reason that he had given, he says, I'm leaving the church because I don't like Pastor Kyle's sermons. So Pastor Kyle calls the guy. Pastor Kyle goes, hey, I hear you're leaving the church. You don't like my sermons. Why don't you like my sermons? And the guy says this. Well, I don't like your sermons because every time you preach, I feel like you're interfering with my life. Okay, so you see that he kind of just exposed himself. So as a Christian, whose terms is it on? A lot of times as Christians, we want to follow Jesus on our terms and get just enough of Jesus where it doesn't mess up my life. Just enough of Jesus to where it fits my schedule, fits my resources, fits my convenience. Let's just fit Jesus in, but not have him interfere right so how do you reconcile that with jesus saying hey take up your cross follow me leave everything i think that's a big interference right imagine right because you know the romans used to crucify the cross was seen as an execution tool so when jesus said hey if you want to follow me take up your cross and follow me how many of his disciples said, whoa, that's pretty interfering? Right? In fact, one version says, it doesn't say take up your cross. It says, take up your execution stake and follow me. Sign-ups? Right? Because in that, in that culture, again, we're thinking, oh, that's really committed. No, in that culture... To follow a rabbi was an all-in moment. We use all-in around here, right? It was an all-in moment from the get-go. From the get-go. And we're going to see what's the basis of it. Love. Love and grace. And you're going to see that by by the time we end today. And so we're looking at what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? A follower of Jesus, right? Let's look at Mark chapter 8. We'll just read the passage that we've been reading because it's, again, uh, just a good review. Puts it in context. Starting in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? 
Peter answered, you are the Christ, right? What does Christ mean? Messiah, anointed one, right? Jesus means. Oh, come on, you know me by now. You got to remember this. It's always going to be a test. What does Jesus mean? The Lord saves, right? The Lord is salvation. Joshua, right? So Jesus Christ, is Christ his last name? No, it's a title. So it should be Jesus the Christ, right? So it says, who does he say him? Peter says, you are the Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why did, why did he say that? We saw two reasons. One, they, did, they thought he was a political, military, economic Messiah, and he wasn't. Okay, so they had a wrong definition of what a Messiah was. Two, look at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men, right? So Jesus talks about his death, crucifixion, his resurrection. Peter gets upset because it didn't meet Peter's expectations of what the Messiah was going to be, right? Then verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So verse 34, again, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So why was Peter upset? One, Jesus' definition of death and suffering and all that didn't jive with the political military ruler, right? Second reason we saw last week, the disciples were pretty sharp. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 Rabbi, you said you're going to suffer many things, be rejected, and that he must be killed. Hey, uh, guys, does that apply to us, too? You see, one of the reasons Peter was upset was he understood, well, if this is our rabbi and he's about to go through that, that falls on us because we follow him this close. So there was a what we call around here a come to Jesus moment. Whoop, rope roll. It was a rope roll moment. The deep breath moment. Oh, OK, he's going. We're to be this close to him. By default, we're going. It's one of those moments when your heart beats. It's one of those moments as a believer where you're tested and you're challenged in this thing called faith. Where you're tested and, and being a Christian isn't convenient, isn't nice, and you're being persecuted and you're dealing with consequences of being obedient to the Scriptures. And it's one of those, oh, really? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And that's tough because 
in the church today, uh, uh, churches are filled, even this morning, where it's come to Jesus and your life is going to be hunky-dory. Come to Jesus and you're going to you know, be prosperous materially and financially and, and you're never going to have another care in the world. That kind of gospel, that kind of teaching will fill buildings. This kind of teaching, kind of empty buildings. <laughs> right? Because it's sobering. You're like, Whew. and that's what Peter and his disciples, they're like, whoa, okay, okay. If he's going to go through that, we're going to be right there with him. As followers, as followers. And so we're, we're understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, I would encourage you to start using the word, I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm a disciple rather than I'm a Christian. Because in America, Christian, that definition is so broad and so washed out and as we saw, even diluted. Not even sure what that means anymore. But if you say you're a follower of Jesus, then you're getting real specific. You're a disciple, then you get real specific. Right? And, and, and we're going to see today a little clearer what it means. Because in verse 34, look what it says there. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And what? Take up his cross. Take up his cross. Today, we're going to see... Uh, in Matthew 11, when we get there, that, that as followers of Jesus, we're also supposed to take up something else. His yoke. Right? So turn to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. 28. So in Mark 8, we're to take up our cross. Matthew 11, 29, we're going to see where to take up his yoke. Matthew 11:28 says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, now now many of you, if you've been in the church, that, that illustration of yoke, kind of an agricultural farming illustration, how many of you have heard that before, right? A yoke was a, a wooden implement where they would yoke or link two animals together to plow a field, okay? So, so this is how I was raised too, right? Jesus, we often say, okay, Jesus yoked, so we're going to be yoked with Jesus, and we're going to go with him, right? Kind of makes sense. But we're going to see that in the context of the rabbi-Talmud relationship, it really is going to make sense, this idea of yoke. Nothing wrong with the farming analogy, because that was real to that context. But something else is going on here when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Okay? So, so to understand this, we talked about that there were rabbis all around uh, Galilee, all around where Jesus was, being a rabbi and having followers was fairly common. It was fairly common. So Jesus, being God, right, there's this big term called the hypostatic union, where, God, where Jesus is fully God, 100% God, 100% man, 
The theological term is hypostatic union. So Jesus, as a rabbi, still being God, was operating within the rabbi Talmud system. Okay, so he was operating, and that's why a lot of the people understood very clearly, very profoundly, what he was saying and doing. Jesus traveled from from place to place, relying on hospitality. That's what rabbis did. They often met in homes. That's what rabbis did. They taught in parables. That's what rabbis did. So Jesus, in one sense, was operating as a classic rabbi, and he had followers. Okay, so he was in the culture. He was in the mix, right? Now, it's important to understand, in this culture, there was two types of rabbis. One rabbi was what they call the teachers of the Torah, right? Okay? They would basically kind of do this. They would say, okay, in the synagogue, they would teach what the Torah said. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. And they would quote other rabbis. According to so-and-so, this is what this means. There was another tier of rabbi. Okay, you see it in your notes there. Kind of pronounce it Semika. Kind of butchered that, but that's what it is. These were the elite. Very, very few rabbis. In fact, to become one of them, you had to have other two Semikas lay hands on you, and you had had to have memorized the entire Old Testament. All right? Kind of like ordination. That word means authority or authorized. So these were like the elite of the elite rabbis. Now, here's what was crazy about them, right? And now you're going to make, this is going to make some sense about some of the things you read in the New Testament. These guys had authority to interpret the Torah in their own way. To give their own interpretation. So, does this sound familiar? They would say something like this. It is written, you have heard that this means this, but I tell you. But I tell you. So, Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to, to judgment. But I tell you. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. Verse 28, But I tell you. So Jesus was operating as a rabbi with the highest authority, a samika. He was giving his own interpretation, the most authoritative interpretation of Scripture. Right? And this wigged people out, right? What, remember, uh, how many times do you see in Scripture in the New Testament, hey, dude, who are you? Remember, they asked repeatedly, by what authority? By what authority are you even saying this? And then they were even astonished, right? In Mark 1, 1, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law, right? Because the Pharisees and the rabbis, they were tripping out. They're like, who is this guy? He didn't come through the ranks, meaning the, the, the formal educational system. In John 7, they're like, who is this guy? He's teaching with authority. But he didn't come through the official ordination ranks. We know everyone who was ordained the way we do it around here, the way the religion does it. So Jesus comes in operating as one of the highest authoritative rabbis, but then he even goes above that. Because in John, I love it. You know, sometimes they would ask him by what authority and he would kind of mess with them. 
He wouldn't really tell them, right? Remember that time when he asked him by what authority, and he says, what about John the Baptist? Was he, you know, he kind of messes with them. I love, though, he does get very specific. In John seven sixteen, he says, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. John twelve forty nine. For I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. John fourteen twenty four. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So here's Jesus. Not only is he acting and behaving like one of the highest authorities, right, the Samikas, now he's saying, hey, by the way, guys, I'm even above you. I speak with the ultimate authority because I'm speaking from what God my Father has told me. So he elevates himself. He elevates himself, right? And here's, here's where we get to understand when he says, take my yoke upon you. A rabbi's yoke, right, was his teaching, interpretation, and application of the law. It was called the yoke of Scripture. It was called a rabbi's yoke. It was called the yoke of doctrine. So when, when a Talmud wanted to follow a rabbi, one of the questions he would ask is, hey, what's your yoke? Because a, a Talmud wanted to know, hey, if I'm going to be so close to you that I'm gonna, you're going to cover me with your dust, what do you stand for? What's your yoke? Right? And here's, Here's one of the ways that people would find out a rabbi's yoke. You know what they would ask him? Hey, rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? Oh, sound familiar? If I wanted to know what this rabbi was all about in his core and his essence of his yoke, his teaching, all I have to do is ask him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Because if you're familiar with the religious leaders, there was like 600 13 commands. And then under 613, there was sub. Right? If you're familiar with, with all the law. Right? I mean, so how do you find out what a rabbi's yoke is? Just ask him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? Right? And what did Jesus say? What is the greatest commandment? Turn to Matthew. If you don't know, turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 34. Okay. Hearing that Jesus had silenced, Matthew 22, 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now do you understand what he's saying? This is my yoke. As the highest authoritative rabbi around here, this is what it boils down to. This is my yoke. If you want to be my follower, there's the yoke that you to take at the core, at the core. Now, what's interesting, you know, how many of you come to Wednesday night, right? How many of you been here Wednesday night and there's been some debate slash discussion, 
How many of you found that a little bit uncomfortable, maybe? Like, can we do that in church? Can we disagree? Can we, right? Wednesday nights are meant to be discussion-oriented. You can raise your hand and ask a question. I thought, I always heard. Here's the cool thing about Wednesday nights, if you have not been. Wednesday nights is a much more biblical model of how the rabbis taught their followers. They would send them out to debate. They would send them out to argue. In fact, what they would do is if I had a bunch of followers and Scott had a bunch of followers, I would say, hey, boys, go drill Scott. Just go, go drill him with what he believes. They were sending followers to each other. And there was a lot of debate and a whole lot of discussion and a whole lot of enthusiasm. And they would get into it about the interpretation and application of Scripture. In Jesus' time, people weren't going to synagogues to listen to the latest and greatest preacher. They weren't doing this. The way that people became disciples and learned the Torah and the Scriptures in Jesus' time is they debated, they dialogued, they talked it out. They got into it. They challenged each other. So now you understand the context of when people throughout the New Testament, what are they constantly doing to Jesus? Challenging Him. Testing Him. Right? The other religious leaders, they're testing His yoke. They're they're constantly just testing Him. You say this. You say this. Moses said this. What do you say? Remember all those? Doesn't it make sense now? The religious leaders and their followers, they're just doing what everyone else did in the culture. Tested each other. They're just doing to Jesus like they did to everyone else, right? And so Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So yoke wasn't just a farming illustration. To take a rabbi's yoke was to embrace, submit, submit to his teaching, his doctrine. Make sense? To be a follower of Jesus, when you take his yoke, is to take and submit to his teaching with the desire to obey. And this is really what, what, what's really important because uh, turn to Deuteronomy because Jesus, Jesus uh, saying in Matthew 22 is taken from Deuteronomy. So go to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, way at the front of the Bible. Right? Deuteronomy 6. And this is, this is where we're going to get real practical here. Deuteronomy 6. So Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right? Very famous passage called the Shema. Everyone say Shema. Shema, right? Very, very famous passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. If you're comfortable writing in your Bibles or if you note, I would circle the word here. The word here. 
Because if we're going to understand what Jesus was teaching, you have to understand the Old Testament definition of that word here. Okay? And again, this is where a lot of us in the, in the Western culture, we compartmentalize following Jesus into hearing and doing. What does is, what is James say in James 1.22? Don't just be hearers, be doers. Otherwise, you're deceived, right? You're deceived. Hearing and doing in Deuteronomy and all throughout the Scripture are what? Inseparable. Everyone say inseparable. Okay. So in the Shema, when he says, hear, O Israel, you might as well say, hear and obey. In the Jewish culture, in the Jewish mindset, I put it in your notes, like what it says there in your notes on the back. I do not hear unless I respond. To hear is to act upon the words spoken. Shema, hear, O Israel, that passage. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to understand. Do you, do you remember when Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? You remember how often he said that, right? Now you understand what he meant by hear, hear and Hear and do. Hear and obey. Right? Remember Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Because in the culture, hearing and obeying are inseparable. Inseparable. How do I know you heard me? Because you did something. Okay. Here's, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, here's, here's probably the best way I can explain this to you. If you've ever had kids, and you directed your kids, to do something. And you know they heard you. Without doubt. And yet. No response. Anyone? You know. You know. You know. That sound waves. Traveled. Traveled to your child's ear. Do the dishes, dishes, dishes. Entered the ear, vibrating the eardrum with the hope and intent that it would manifest itself in the hands and the feet going to do the dishes. Right? Anyone? Can I get an amen? Right? All the time. We got an all the timer. Right? And so you start to build this tension, right? Why are you getting angry? Why are you getting tense? Because you expect them to respond to what you said. Amen? And the fact that they are somehow either playing deaf, like, huh? Huh? Anyone? I didn't hear you. Selective hearing. Thank you. Right? Why do we get upset with that? Because we said something with the expectation that their hearing it would respond in action. Everyone say shema. Here. That's it. That's it. If you've ever been upset with someone for not doing something that you know they heard with the expectation that they were going to react and respond to what you told them to do inseparably, now you understand biblical hearing. 
Now you understand biblical healing. Okay? We're going to follow Jesus and be covered by his dust. He says, follow me. Hear and do. Hear and do. Talmud implicitly trusted their rabbis. They would go and do. They didn't even question. They just went. If you've ever been in the military or some sort of authoritative structure where you know you just go and you just do without question, that was the relationship. Now you understand, like we said last Tuesday, now you understand why Peter wanted to go out where Jesus was on the water. It wasn't about Peter trying to puff himself up. He said, hey, my rabbi's out there. I got to go. I'm supposed to be this close with him. That's why Peter wanted to get out on the water because his rabbi was on the water. I want to be you. Unquestioned. Unquestioned. When Jesus said, come, initially Peter went because he had implicit trust in his rabbi's words. Well, my rabbi said, come. Okay. Peter's failure wasn't in Jesus' word. Peter's failure was that he took his eyes off of his rabbi and the faith in his rabbi. Right? He implicitly trusted. And so to hear, biblically, is to hear and obey. They're inseparable. Inseparable. And this is where I think a lot of us are challenged in our, in our following of Jesus. Right? Turn to James chapter 1. James 1. James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Very powerful translation. That word deceive is delude. Delude. If you think, what he's saying in James, if you think you can come on Sundays or go to Bible study and just receive it as academic information and not do anything with it, James 1.22 says you're deluded. Deluded. That means it's a miscalculation. It's like taking a math problem out and getting the wrong, having wrong reasoning. Faulty reasoning is a math problem. Faulty logic. That's what it means. If you are separating hearing and obedience, James 1.22 says you're, NIV says deceived, other version says deluded. What's interesting too, and the word says do not merely listen. You know that word listen is related to where we get the word audit, auditor. How many of you in college ever audited a class? Anyone? You know what it means to audit a class in college? Here's what it means. The professor gives you permission to come in and listen, but the homework and the exams are optional. So you come in and you audit the class, you hear a lot of information, but you don't have to do anything with it as far as the exams and the homework. It's optional. 
that's kind of what has happened in the church. We're auditing Scripture. We audit church. We come and we sit and we want to get the best out of it, but we consider the doing part, the active part, optional. And then he gets then 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 he says, Well, if that's your mindset, you know what, guys? You're deceived and deluded. You're deceived and you're deluded. We talked about transformation for a whole year. And we ask, why? Why does it feel like I'm stuck? Why why do I feel like I'm plateaued as a Christian? I've grown, God's changed me, but now I feel kind of blah, I feel apathetic, I feel like I'm stuck. It might be this. There might be an area of your in your life right now where the time has come for you to hear and obey. And for quite a while you've considered it optional. And and you've worked on other areas, but you've always known you had this secret. You've always known you've had this pet thing or this thing that you just couldn't go. And you're kind of plateaued as a believer because you sort of made that optional. It's your thing. Jesus understands. He knows that's my cross to bear, even though that's not even what that means. Maybe this morning, because you understand what to hear is, Jesus is very lovingly saying, hey, turn to Matthew 11, 28. We'll close with this. Look what he says. To those of you who may be struggling this morning, look what he says again in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in the broad sense, he's speaking to those who are under the burden of the old covenant laws. The 600 plus laws and then the thousands or so sub laws. Hey, if you're under that yoke of bondage to the old system, the old covenant, come to me. It's the new covenant. Love God with your whole being. But there might be some today. And you're weary. Maybe even burned out spiritually. Maybe, maybe you're at the end of your rope. Maybe it's a valley time for you. And you're burdened. And often you're just struggling spiritually. Maybe today you need to just yield to His yoke. You, you've heard it. You already know the Scriptures. If you were to come to me for counseling... And about, about this issue, and I were to open the Bible, you would probably say this, I know, I know, I've heard it, and I know. And your struggle is that you've heard it, but you've not responded to it. And that's wearing you down. And you're burdened. And you're just, you just, oh, Lord. 
Maybe for you this morning, Jesus says, hey, in this area, hear and do. Hear and do. Obey me. Trust me. Right? Right? And look at, we'll look at one more verse. I'm sorry. Turn to 1 John 5. Look at this verse. 1 John 5. If you're struggling this morning, We know that the heart of the New Covenant is loving Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will obey what I command. We're, we're turning to 1 John 5. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Right? John 15:10. if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. So in the New Covenant, Jesus ties, again, inseparably, loving him with what? Obeying him. Right? A fruit of our love is obedience. Right? Look what it says in 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God. To obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. This is love for God to obey His commands. And His commands are not what? Ooh. So I want you to think about that area where you're struggling with obedience. Do you see it as burdensome? Is it grievous? Is it a heavy weight on you? And if it is, Ask yourself, why? Why? Because according to 1 John 5, 3, His commands are not burdensome. How is that? How can Jesus' commands not be burdensome? Right? And look what He says, verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Even our... How can, you, how can you transform that issue in your life, that issue in my life, from being a huge burden, a heavy weight, this thing pressing on me? Faith. Faith. At a certain point, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to trust that His commands are the best for us. Jesus says, I came to give you life and life abundantly. Jesus didn't say, hey, Mark, Come follow me and I'm going to ruin your life, buddy. Right? At a certain point, we have to implicitly trust that Jesus' commands are the ultimate best for us. And in following His commands, we, we will receive and enjoy that abundant life He came to give us. It's when we struggle with our faith that those issues become burdensome. It's a faith issue. It's a faith issue. If I'm struggling with my finances, it's a faith issue. If I'm struggling with forgiving someone based on how the Lord forgave me, it's a faith issue. Really, we we call it the flesh, and it might be a flesh, it might be temptation, but it just might be a faith issue. Do you trust, do I trust God's commands are what's best for me? 
Do I trust implicitly that if I follow him, if I take his yoke, that that's what's best for me? That is a step of faith. That is a step of faith. And we talked about it last week. Because when you take Jesus' yoke and you walk by faith and not by sight, the world's not going to understand. The world's going to think you're cray-cray. That's a step of faith. It's going to be a huge step of faith. What are you doing? Oh, come on, everyone fudges. It's just a, it's just a white lie. Oh, you're just a goody two-shoe. Right? I read a story of this pastor on a Monday morning. He had preached Sunday night in his church. On a Monday morning, he got onto a bus. Right? And he paid the bus fare, and the bus driver gave him back too much change. And he goes, hey, you know what? You gave me too much. The bus driver goes, I know. I wanted to see what you were going to do because I was in your church last night. You profess to be a follower of Jesus, they're watching you. And they're listening at bonds. Now, you don't carry this title around. I'm at Costco. Hey, Pastor Richie! And everyone's like, a pastor's here? I mean, right? I mean, it's like weird. I get called out, like in the clothing department, because some little kid sees me. Hey, Pastor Rich, you know, it was so funny. I, I shared this story before. Uh, Noah's brother, Jordan, we took him to Carpinteria years ago when he was in high school. And we're throwing the football around at Carpinteria. And he, over there, he's calling me Pastor Richie, Pastor Richie, right? At, like at the beach. And he finally says, can I ask you a question? He goes, what do I call you here? Because <laughs> he kind of felt it was weird to call me Pastor Richie out at the beach. And I said, well, if you want to call, I understand he was very respectful. So you can call me Pastor Richie at church. Here, I'm just Richie, right? But minus the title, we're still believers. 24-7. We're still followers of Jesus. By faith, we must believe. Not only that He died for us at Calvary, not only that He paid the penalty for our sins, but by faith, we believe that in obeying Him, we'll find the abundant life. So if you're struggling with an issue that you might be finding burdensome, ask yourself, Lord, what's the faith issue? Where am I struggling in trusting you? Where am I struggling in submission? Where am I struggling in surrender? And you might need to have someone pray with you. You might have someone encourage you. You might have someone make a plan. Okay? We're not called to do this in isolation. I love 1 John 5. His commands are not burdensome. Why? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Close with this. In this culture... Two big cultures that we have to understand. The Hebrew culture, the Jews, their primary organ in their relationship and how they process the world is their ear. God was invisible. So they reacted to God and everything through their ear. Hero Israel. The Greeks, the art, sculpture and everything, they're Greeks, visual. The eye. We're the Greeks. We want to see things. We want to touch things. Well, how's it going to play out? Show me, God. Show me, God. He's like, no, listen to me. 
Listen to me. Trust me, even though you don't see me. Trust me. Hear and obey. So maybe that's what it is. Because the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord, Lord, thank you. Thank you for helping us to understand the context culturally and biblically of what Jesus said when he called us to take his yoke. His yoke. And maybe there's some here this morning that have still been in bondage to trying to please you, trying to earn their way into your good grace by works. The old covenant. And they're burdened and they're weary of trying to find peace with God through works. My prayer is that if that's you, that you would take Jesus' yoke. His yoke of grace. His yoke of the new covenant. His yoke that is centered on loving God. And Lord, perhaps there is somebody here who who's struggling in a specific area of life, an area of obedience. They heard Scripture. They know the Scriptures. They've heard it for years and years and years. They may have even been to counseling. And they've been struggling because they see obedience as burdensome. My prayer for them this morning is that by faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit, they would trust you and obey. Not in their own strength. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Simply because they love you and obedience is a fruit of that love. We're going to go ahead and um, we'll distribute communion. There will be two cups. If you're visiting, there's two cups. One has bread and one has juice. And We'll use this as a time of reflection and prayer. After everyone's served, we'll take communion together. And just encourage you. The ultimate example of love and obedience was Jesus coming. In the garden, He was struggling. In the garden, He's like, Father, really? Really? And then He said, nevertheless, not My will, but Your will be done. So may Jesus' example of submission and trust be your example in whatever area you're struggling with today. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Let's go ahead and distribute communion. Lord, we thank you for your example of love and submission to your Father's will. We hold these cups as tangible symbols and reminders of that. We thank you, Jesus. Before we take communion, eyes closed. If you are here and you know there is an area of struggle where you have not been doing and responding to what you know Scripture clearly says, 
Maybe you understand now that initial faith surrenders initially. And God has spoken to you this morning. I'd like to pray for you before we take communion. So if that is you and God has spoken to you about an area of obedience in your life, why don't you put your hand up and I'll pray for you. Good. Father, thank you for speaking to so many this morning. And now, Lord, we, uh, we recognize that we can't do it in the flesh. Obedience is a supernatural work empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so we yield. And we take this communion, Jesus, in remembrance of you. And, and again, just your example of yielding to your Father's will. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you, Jesus, for paying the price we could never have paid. Go ahead and take communion. I want to close with uh, Galatians 5.1. You don't have to turn there. Galatians 5.1 says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen. I want to encourage you in the following of Jesus. In the hearing and obeying, there's the freedom. Through faith in Christ, we have been set free from the penalty of sin. We have been set free from the power of sin. We're no longer slaves of sin. Amen? One day, we're going to be free from the presence of sin. Amen? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Walk closely with Him this week. Trust that in staying close to Him, in the hearing and obeying, there's the freedom and the joy through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's stand together and let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, again, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. May we leave here with the desire to stay so close to you, Jesus, that your dust would cover us this week. May we trust that your commands are not burdensome. May we obey in faith in the power of the Holy Spirit and may we be set free from years of bondage. Years of bondage. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. So Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Be glorified as we leave here that we would be salt and light in this community. Not just by our words, but by our actions. And we'll always give you the glory. And all God's people said... Amen. You are dismissed. Give someone a hug.